Welcome to Word of Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 11-3-2021. We're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time we have this evening. We are grateful for your word kept and preserved for us. Uh, we, we can't think of the value of your word unless we allow the Holy Spirit to teach us exactly what you wanted to say there. We are grateful not only for the word, but for the spirit of truth, which reveals the meaning that is there. We thank you, Father, for this group where we're able to freely discuss your word. And those who come, we pray for each family represented. Pray for those who are sick among us, those who are in need of healing, Father. And as we know, it, it is all according to your perfect will. All of this we ask in Christ's name, for his sake. Amen. 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 So we, as you know, uh, where we are uh, is in Romans chapter 9, and we have reached a point where we finished this chapter. So obviously you know there are no chapter breaks in the Bible. These are letters that were written and collected, and the chapters and verses are put in for our being able to uh, have a road map and sort of like an index to understanding the scriptures. So chapter 10, we are, we are recognizing that we are leaving chapter 9 and moving on to chapter 10. We, we have finished uh, the, the 33 verses in chapter 9. And um, so we have a review before us at this point. And where we'll just kind of go over um, what we covered, but we won't necessarily go to all the detail and scriptures that we covered. Um, I will leave that to you to discover and look through and see what other scriptures make sense as well. Uh, you have the notes, you have the email, so. All of, um, all of that has been covered, and you have it all. So um, you have what I have at this point. So we are going to pick up that review shortly, but we do have a, some opportunity for some Q&A, and we will take that now. Uh, I'm, I think Bill has something, and we're going to defer to Bill right now. Go right ahead. Okay. So, and of course, where we're studying at is what all of this combined when we talk about such a great salvation and things of that nature. So it just brought to mind the word heart. So the Bible used, like in the NIV, it's about 82 times to use this. Uh, the New Testament talks about the heart. Now we had a little uh, short conversation, a little study way back about the heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not referring to the one that pumps the blood. Am I right? 
That's right. It's referring yeah. to yeah, it's referring to something else. But it uses the heart in so many different metaphors. It's hard to distinguish just what 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 part of the human being is the Bible referring to when it talks about the heart. And I need you to elaborate on that. Sure. Well, I wouldn't say that it does not ever refer to a physical uh, organ in, in the body. I think it would refer to that, but in those cases, it's probably pretty obvious when it, when it does that. So, but, but generally speaking, I know what you're saying. Heart, the word heart, which is, which is really um, cardia in Greek, but it's, um, it is used metaphorically speaking many times in scripture. So how do we, or how do we see that? What does that mean when we think of heart? So I, I think um, that the heart is this, what I've kind of come to think of it as the seat of the soul. It is where we have... Uh, on the inside of us, nobody else can see where we use to uh, form our identity, our norms and standards, our priority, all of that, our priorities, uh, our consciousness is all in our heart. It is the real us. We can look at the outside and say, here's one metaphor that's used, is that man looks at the outward appearance and when we think about the outward appearance, we make judgments about the, what we can see. Maybe facial expressions, maybe emotions that are showing on, on the person's face or happiness or whatever, whatever it is that uh, we can see. But it says, but, but God looks on the heart. He can see what is really going on inside of a person. And so it also deals with, it's not just the seat of the soul, the person, but it also deals with um, the motivations of that person as well. So God looks at the heart. So, so automatically that says a couple things to us. It says that we can be superficial uh, we can be hypocrites uh, when it comes to the way we can hide what's in our heart. We can display something different on the outside. We can't do that with God, but we can do that with people. Like when Paul uh, saw Peter acting in a way that was dishonest, <clears throat> and Peter knew better, so why was he playing a role because he was afraid of the Jews who were coming. So, uh, so Paul checked him on this by saying, you know, he said he braced him to his face. He, he, he withstood him to his face because he knew that he was acting in a way that was hypocritical. And so... Heart can be used for the seat of the soul, our motivations, our priorities, who we, what we think of ourselves is all bound up in the heart. It's a metaphor speaking of the heart. 
and um, it's more like uh, when we're unsaved there's scriptures that we can relate to where it talks about the heart is desperately wicked who can know it so in other words the heart that is dominated by the sin nature obviously can't think of anything that would be pleasing to God it it, it can only be negative to God uh, so when we think about um, the believer we can be transformed and our hearts can be toward God now. now that we can be transformed into his image. The think, our thinking can be transformed, which is where so it's a byproduct of what is, it comes from the heart. In other words, the seat of the soul of man is the heart. And what can, can derive from that? Well, emotion, motivation, uh, whatever your standards or principles are, all of those things can emanate from the heart. And so, um, for believers, that can be transformed by God if we allow it. So the the heart has it, it has a pretty definite meaning, uh, and there's lot a lot of scriptures. Uh, and instead of um, trying to de come up with a standard definition for heart, probably the best thing to do would be to allow what the scripture context is to determine how it's used. But I will pause to see if you have thoughts around that. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of scriptures. Now, now Romans, was it, uh, Romans 10, 10 says, and Romans is one of the books that has the word heart a lot. It's like three of the books in the Bible. That's what they use a lot of Romans, Matthew, and uh, Acts. Place you're going to find the word heart. Mm -hmm. But in Romans 10, 10, it says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. So, I mean, that's a very serious scripture right there. We need to understand what heart is, like when, when he's using what he says with your heart. So what is he talking about? But before you answer that, there's another scripture um, and uh, first, I think it's First Timothy one five. It talks about it gives three different criteria where it talks about heart, conscience, and faith as three separate things. Right. The goal of the so, command is love, uh, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple uses of heart, but I think. Those do fall into the pattern of what we just spoke of, but let's look at a couple of them. Romans 10, 9 and 10. So this is salvation. Right? And it's interesting that as we read, and we are in the midst of reading Romans, uh, so we're, we're, we're just about ready to get to 10. So what, what are we seeing already from 9? We're seeing Paul continuing to address issues from... Uh, that arise from Israel. And so, uh, are we going to get any different in 10? No, no. And in 11, he continues on with uh, the same thought. And, uh, and he obviously throws in how it relates to the church, but he continues on and on with what the scriptures are in relationship to Israel. So, in 10, 
9 and 10, you have Paul's uh, reaching out to the Israel regarding salvation. And this is the very thing that they have missed in, in their history. Uh, generationally speaking, they have missed the, uh, the way of salvation. And they have gone far from what Abraham brought, which was salvation by faith justification by faith and uh, so you would imagine uh, here if they're talking about we are you know Abraham you know we hail from Abraham I don't know this is in Romans 8 when they were saying this we don't know who you are uh, they, they said Abraham is our father but they weren't following the pattern of Abraham which is salvation by grace through faith so anyway, Paul continues to witness to them. And if you see all the way up before you get to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we're going to cover all of this. He's quoting scriptures from Old Testament and trying to help the Jews understand what was their flaw, why did, what was the root of their failure. And in 10, 9, and 10, he tells them what, what they should have done way back uh, from generations past and this is why they're in it's the problem they're having the problems they're having today so Romans 10 9 and 10 is used by many churches today as a declarative way for people to be saved I am not saying it does not uh, help a person to be saved but um, we should know that it originated why he wrote this is so that he can help the Jew understand what was the problem they had. And we will get to the details as we go through the context and we'll see those things that help us understand that. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this is very particular scripture in that it mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you would say, um, how is it that uh, I'm speaking of this generationally and Jesus didn't come until this generation they're in right now? And the point is that they're rejecting him. They reject that Jesus is the Messiah. So Romans 10.9 clearly says it, that you got this is what you need to believe. You need to believe that, uh, God, that Jesus is Lord, right? But he's not just Lord. We know he is Savior. But what for them, for the Jews, they refused to believe that Jesus was kurios or Lord. And so, and, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. He says you will be saved. He's telling this to the Jew. He's saying how easy salvation is. Now, it's not just, you know, saying that and uh, the confessing with your, your mouth. And, and I know people uh, have made so much out of this, but this is a Jewish thing. And we'll get to why he said with your mouth and all that once we get down to those verses. And then, but 10 is a clarification of what he meant in verse 9. So when you read Romans 10, 9, you might not understand that. But if you read 10, you get what he's saying. There's more clarification. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that, that you profess your faith and are saved. So 
notice the order of what it really means, right? So um, notice, but the heart here is the real person, right? You could say what you want out of your mouth. Jesus even said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? In other words, if I'm your Lord, that's master. That means master. And But yet, you're using it in a facetious way. You, you don't really mean that I'm Lord when you say Lord, Lord. You are, you are just saying that to placate me and as a way of introduction so that you can get near me and ask a question. Jesus is saying, you, you really are not, you don't think I'm Lord. So people can say one thing, but here he's clarifying. If, if you, and this is 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, this is nine, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with the mouth that you profess your faith and are saved, right? So justified, and he's saying that you, the order is you believe in your heart and the result of believing in your heart will be profession with your mouth. But there's, you know, uh, here's another one. Here's another metaphor. As the scripture said, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's an Old Testament scripture from Isaiah. Uh, and then if you drop down to verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, so this is, metaphorically speaking for Jews, how they would understand um, salvation. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? This is verse 14. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone, pre so he's, he's leveling and covering all the bases for Israel so that they won't have any question about what salvation is. So whatever happened in the past, uh, they may have missed it. But this generation right here has the opportunity to believe in Christ. And uh, to your point, Bill, to the heart, the heart part is, the, like we say, it's the seed of the soul. It's what the person really believes in their soul. Right? So it's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. A person might say, well, he said the magic words, believe in Jesus Christ, he said it. That means he must be saved. No, no, that's not true. You could say anything you want out of your mouth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that is what happens in your heart. So we have very definitive scriptures when it comes to how a person is saved and why they need salvation. And Paul has already gone over this in great detail in Romans 3 and 4 and 5. Clearly, he spelled out the way of salvation, how you, how you get justified, is free, is through the, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So here, he's reaching out specifically to Jewish thinking, and we will cover that in a little more detail. I will pause. Oh, so it, it just... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I forgot to talk about the other. Scripture. I'll go so, 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 what it gave me a thought of the souls under the altar, and we know that's probably not Israel. But so, do they have a heart? Well, 
Would you say those souls have a heart? I mean, they, the heart is the real person. But when it talks so, about... So yeah, when, but when it speaks of, of the souls under the altar crying out, how long, how long, and all that, it is really a, a reference to the fact that people have died. And they're, like, like it says in Genesis, their blood calls out for justice because of their murder. They were murdered uh, in such horrible ways and will there ever be justice so and so to metaphorically speak for them souls under the altars are this is used to say that when will justice be uh, for these people who have been martyred i don't think it necessarily is now do, do the people who have been martyred have do they have hearts and the answer is yes each one of them. But are their hearts actually saying that? I don't know. I think they're gone. Once they depart this life, it's over. Right? They don't have anything to do with anything under the sun. So, uh, they, But but justice still, it, it, there is a demand for justice over those lives, right? Okay. But so one, one last dead in Christ, you still have a heart, but the heart is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says. Uh, the heart, out of the heart flows evil things, and murderous thoughts, and hatred, and all kinds of things Jesus talks about. But then to be able to turn your to heart to God, in other words, God, this is a work God can do on us through salvation. We can now begin to learn about who God is, and our hearts can be transformed into his way of thinking. And so that can, that's part of it. There's another uh, scripture that just comes to mind. And this is, uh, here it is. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. And it says, uh, having, it's talking about the Gentiles, verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, and it continues, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully with his neighbor, your neighbor, you are, for you, we are all members of one body. And it goes on, but so you can see what, what the transformation of having a heart that is sinful, uh, evil, 
So, so when, when you are learned and you're taught of God, you, that heart can be transformed now so that it's used for God's purposes and for his good. So it's the heart's still there, although it can be transformed. The heart here, there is a reference to the thinking, taking away the heart of stone or, and giving you a heart of flesh or a soft heart is a reference to uh, God changing the way we think being transformed and here is a good example of how that works it is not something you snap your finger and all of a sudden because you're saved all of a sudden these things are now uh, true of you uh, but no you still have to learn you have you have to be taught you have to be, have humility so God can teach you like it says in Romans 12 it says uh, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind then we will know what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So we, we don't know what it is when we're unbelievers. We can't do any good. The heart is desperately wicked. Nobody, all of this comes from Adam. It's not necessarily because of some decisions we made. All of our hearts are evil when it comes to uh, or compared to God. I'll pause, Bill. I got it. Those are just some things that was came to mind. I was just trying to put some clarity on. It's really what I would call the hardest. If you had to use another word for all the metaphors that the Bible uses for heart, what would you use? Thinking, motivations, right? the real person, right? what, what a person real, really thinks inside. Um, you know, like I said, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Well, what, what's in the heart? God can tell what the person really believes. And the Holy Spirit witnesses to our hearts. Like, we can talk to the outside of the person, but we don't know what's going on on the inside. Only God and the Holy Spirit can investigate that and witness to the inside of the person. And we call that the heart. So since Greeks really didn't have um, words to describe what was on the inside of a person, they don't have medical terms like we have today. So for a good example of that is uh, for emotion. Right? We can just say emotions, everybody knows what that means, but they didn't really have that in the same way. So they used the word splagnon which meant inward parts, entrails, like inside your stomach. So they felt like emotions were feelings in, that generated in your stomach area, region, and that's why they called it that. And that. But what they meant, even though they might say that, but they meant emotions. So in the same way, if we're looking at the anatomy of how we think on the inside, our mental capacities, um, and how what's going on as far as that's concerned they use heart heart what is a good analogy because it is the very seat of your soul if you get pierced through the heart pretty much that's it if you kill the heart then the body is gone and uh, that's that was a common understanding you could stab somebody with a sword in many places, but if you stab them in the heart, 
that person will likely die. Not many people survive um, something like that. And so it, it is a real, it's a good analogy for the soul as well. The soul is invisible. You can't see the soul if you dissect a human body. You won't be able to say, oh, you see, see this piece right here? This is the soul. You won't be able to do that. So how do we understand? Even the word soul uh, is referencing that inward part of who we are. And we could say component parts of the soul. I know we broke it down to soul has emotions, volition, consciousness, self-consciousness, and uh, mentality. Right? So, so we could break it down into all those things, but really all, we're, all those things are describing are attributes that are relative to the soul which really is an invisible part of us. But we know it is common to every human being. This is part of our human makeup that we all have in common such things, even though they are invisible, medically speaking. I'll pause. Yeah, well, I'm good. Thank, thank other, you other thoughts out there? Thanks, Bill, for the question. We haven't really talked about heart in a while. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, I just, I just had a, uh, a, a thought that I just wanted to put on the table. Sure. Regarding the uh, heart, <clears throat> you know, I think that, uh, you know, we all come from different backgrounds, but I think, by and large, religion, uh, you know, I, you know, they seek, they have different definitions for heart and head belief. And it seems to me that, you know, uh, some, you know, some believe that, uh, well, you know, you'll hear, well, he didn't have a heart belief. He only had a, a head belief for it. And uh, I think that they attach different meanings to the heart to control. So in other words, uh, it didn't take, it really didn't take if your behavior didn't meet their religious standards. That you only had a head belief; it wasn't a heart belief. And um, I, I think clearly that religious uh, organizations, uh, through emotion and uh, a lot of misuses of the word heart, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you des described. You know the. Scripture says that the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it. And I'm glad that you took the time to go through the transformation process. But <clears throat> it's unfortunate that it seems to me religious organizations attach all these different meanings to heart and head belief to control behavior in the believer. And if you don't comply with that standard, then maybe you then you are saved. True, true. Thanks for, for bringing that and laying it on the table. We should be aware that uh, religious organizations do say things such like uh, that was a head belief, not a heart belief. In other words, it, did, the real, did the person really get behind what, they're, what they believe? The only way they can judge that is if they're looking at works. 
they're watching the person's works and saying, well, does, does the person have Christian, what we consider Christian works? And if we see them, then we'll say, yeah, that person did believe. And if we don't see them, then they'll say, hmm, maybe they just said on the outside they believe, but really they didn't believe in their heart. And, and, and hence, they are not saved. But really, what are, since we can't see whether a person believes or, or not, we can't see that. I can't. You can't. I don't care who you are. You cannot see that. God can see it. Now, and then, so we should then ask a second question. What requirements are there for salvation? Does the person need works? Is, it, is the person required to show forth Christian works in order to, that we validate his salvation? No, that's not our job. It's God's job to raise him up and train him and teach him the ways. And he has pastor teachers and he has means by which uh, that happens. But that is not an indication whether a person has works or not as to whether or not they're saved. Because salvation is, as we already know, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if, if the whole thing, the whole salvation, is not of works, lest anyone should boast, then we can't use that works, those works, as a criteria for salvation. That's pretty clear to me. Not clear to a lot of people, but pretty clear to me that works cannot be used as a criteria for salvation. Whatever you think of salvation... You can't look at works to uh, assess whether or not a person has salvation. Now, of course, we know works can, uh, they do accompany salvation. God does ex have expectations of us to do works, and all of that is true. But we are not to take those works and to say, or lack thereof, and say, oh, this person can't be saved because he didn't do what we thought he should do. So we have to be careful. A person could be saved but not choose to grow up in Christ. That's, that's completely, uh, when salvation is not of works, there is no supernatural power that forces you to do good works. Uh, that's not the case. We, I just saw, I mean, we just read in Ephesians chapter 4 how that works, how we could put on the new self. And we have, have to be taught. We have to have humility. We have to, it's like it says, uh, God has assigned each one a measure of faith that we can know what his will is and be transformed and, and as we put our trust in Christ. So, so good point to make. Um, but yet people don't follow strictly what salvation is. It can't be any works because we're dead. What can we do for, before God? So I'll pause. And uh, But we better head on to our review. Thanks for your, your thoughts. Um, Bill as well, those are excellent questions. We could, we could talk about, about this even more as we go forward. So, but what I'm gonna turn your attention to is the notes at this point. Uh, so you should have notes. I'm gonna to turn to mine. Um, stand by. Yeah, so you should have some notes and here they are. Uh, and I'm gonna read from the notes and we'll get busy with the review. 
So as we come to the end of this important chapter, we should stop to review the reason God gave us this information. Once we discover this, the next thought should be how we may make an application today in our lives. There has been much controversy around this chapter, and I am happy we are, were able to take our time to investigate these matters for ourselves. Certainly there is more to know, just as in every chapter, but the hope is that we, with this opportunity to go through these verses, that we brought some clarity where these verses have been used to create disagreement and division. It does not matter who is right or wrong, but we want to allow God to speak to us through his word about what is most important to him. So I took my time and I tried to be careful not to implicate certain groups of people in this introduction. Because as I sat back and thought about it, sure, we could point some discrepancies out to people. Um, it's easy enough to do that. We could, we could use this as a battering ram to tell people, look, you've been wrong all these years. The ground you're standing on is wrong. <laughs> we may be able to even say that. But even if we did such things, which was, I think would be in the wrong spirit, but it, most importantly, we should hear God's point of view. That's what I think is lacking when people assume certain verses and then others say, no, I don't agree with that. And then they fight and come up with another version of what they think it should be. And then you sit back and wonder, should you even enter this fight? Or should you just, let's just say what God is saying. What does God want to say? And I used to do this with salvation. People would take salvation passages that seemed like, well, it might be that you can lose your salvation. So people on one side of it who, who are proponents for eternal, eternal security would say, wait a minute, that's, not, that's wrong. You can't lose your salvation. So let me tell you the reasons why that verse uh, is not saying that. But it wouldn't be that they would study the verse and look and see what the verse said, they would stand on their principles and say, no, you can't lose your salvation no matter what. And wh whatever solution uh, could be will be fine with me. And the people on the other side will say, oh, here's a verse that clearly says you can lose your salvation. So, you know, they had this fight. So what I found that was I looked at those verses, I really took, took those verses in context and I have not found a verse in the Bible that says you can lose your salvation once you have it. Not one. In fact, I found the opposite. Assurance that once you have salvation, you shall not perish. You have crossed over from death to life. There will be no judgment for you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, on and on, I found the opposite. So what, are, what about those verses that people are using to misconstrue this point? Well, unless you study those verses, you won't find what God is really trying to tell us in those verses. He has a message. And it is for us to investigate, not to just 
use it as some kind of weapon against some other group. It literally has something to say to us. What does it have to say to us? So this is why I say I am not trying to use Romans 9 in that way. I want to use it most of all so that we can discuss what is God trying to tell us through these verses. That's most important. So we have to watch and check our behavior, our attitude. When we talk to people, when we address wrongs that are apparent, how do we handle it, right? I mean, just imagine if you're, you're an adult and you see a child doing something wrong, uh, you're going to think about how you approach that child and tell them so that not only does the, does the behavior uh, stop, but you want to teach as well, always, when it comes to children. They don't know any better. So in the same way, you have to think about it from a more mature perspective. So whether it be anything, whatever it is, uh, whether it's getting to the bottom of some controversial issue, if you got to the bottom of it and you know what God is trying to say in that area, then you want to use it wisely and be careful how we use this information. So let's get into it. So we, we just, that's a short introduction, but a very interesting chapter, I find. And I will tell you, I will just admit, did I have everything I know about Romans 9 prior to studying Romans 9? The answer is no, I didn't. And the reason is, it's because I haven't gone through Romans 9, verse by verse. I haven't allowed God to really tell me what it is he's trying to say, verse by verse. So, no, I haven't, I didn't have preconceived ideas uh, all laid out for Romans. I didn't have it for Romans. I had generally what I knew God was trying to say there, but not in the detail that he has given us in these chapters. So I'm going to briefly begin to go over uh, the outline that we have. And I don't think it will take us too long, but let's dig, dig in. So Romans 9, 1 through 5, for sure, this is the first point, for sure, the Apostle Paul is not against Israel. Some may have viewed Paul as a traitor to Israel, his own people, but that is not the case. And Paul understood God's eternal purpose. He, he knew that Israel still had a purpose and that salvation was, God still stretched out his hand to those who are of Jewish descent. And yet, they targeted Paul as a traitor, somebody who was deserving of death. And I'll just read Acts 23, 12 through 22, just so we can get some context on this, this thought. Acts 23 and verse 12. So this is a plot that they had that they wanted to kill the Apostle Paul. So the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. 
they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you, ha you want to tell me? Uh, he said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting to ambush, in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to this request. The commander dismissed the young man with, his warn with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Notice what is going on behind the scenes. More importantly, notice who's involved. Not only is it these 40 men who have decided that they wanted Paul dead, the Sanhedrin is involved. And they were going to be complicit in Paul's death by creating some ruse to get Paul you know, another viewing. And on the, on the way there, they would have these men ambush the, the Romans and kill Paul. So they hated him. I mean, the, the Sanhedrin was involved. I mean, you imagine the Jewish, uh, the Jewish lawmakers are the Sanhedrin. Those, those were like the Jewish politicians, but they were also religious as well. So they were willing to take out the Apostle Paul. They hated him that much. In fact, there are many other scriptures I could have pointed to that talks about uh, how Paul was viewed as a traitor to Israel and talking about uh, destroying the Mosaic law, which they thought was a crime worthy of death. Point B, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was, has, was, has not forgotten where he came from, and he certainly cared about Israel. So what I didn't do was read Romans 9, 1 through 5. Let's quickly read that so we can understand why these points are being made. One, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God 
over all, forever praised. Amen. So what, that's almost a doxology uh, where Paul is speaking. He does care about Israel. And ironically, God called him the apostle to the Gentiles. But don't think for a moment that Paul uh, did not care about the Jews or somehow wanted to betray them in some way. He just understood God's eternal purpose and he uh, yielded to it. He didn't fight like Pharaoh did. He said, yes, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I'm, I'm, I'm your servant. I, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. So point C, Israel had or has an illustrious past and future. And God did not err by calling Israel. Yes, Israel did some horrible, treacherous, traitorous things in the face of God, right? Right before God. I mean, God said, go do this. They did the opposite. He said, don't worship other gods. They ran after other gods. Uh, whatever God told them to do, they did. And then to cap it all off, God sent his son, the Messiah to Israel, to those who should know who he is, to those who had a culture of understanding God's will and purposes. And what did they do? They killed him. Israel, by our standards, would have forfeited anything that had to do with uh, them being some special people. But God is faithful. It's like it says in Romans 11, his, for his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He will not take back what he has started. He says, I got a plan for Israel. And uh, yes, Israel failed miserably, but God still has a future for the nation Israel and they will continue to exist later. So point C, Israel has, we already did that, point D, of all the cultures, nations, God established and demonstrated his fidelity to Israel. Quote, and this is from what we would call the new covenant to Israel. Quote, I will be their God and they will be my people. And I used to listen to that verse, um, that quote, over and over. I remember hearing it and reading it. Whenever I read the new covenant, that one phrase would stand out for me. I want to read Jeremiah 31. Uh, really, so this is, that's 34, but it's really, you may correct the notes, it's 31, uh, 31 through 34 is the whole of the new covenant. Let's look at it. Jeremiah... Let's go to Jeremiah, stand by. And 31, 31 through 34, here it is. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the, with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. Here is that phrase. I will be their God and they will be my people. That speaks of relationship. And to me, th those are words, not what does Israel want, but these are words that express what does God want out of this. I will be their God and they will be my people. And continuing, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will, will remember their sins no more. And this, to me, is wonderful words for Israel. Words that should just breathe confidence for them. Should give them an outlook on life that God is with them and will always continue to be with them. So, and if you continue to read these verses, God continues to give more assurances to the nation Israel. I'm just going to read a couple. So this is verse 35. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day and who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the fountains of the earth be stretched out, and I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for me, uh, from the tower of Haniel to the corner gate. He continues to give assurance after assurance to Israel that they will never um, be cast away forever. God will discipline them, yes, but there will always be a remnant of Israel. We're continuing back to the notes. I can get caught up in these things. Uh, so they have an illustrious and glorious future. Their culture was infused with God. Uh, he wanted to be uh, their God and they be his people. Let's continue to point number two, Romans 9, 6 through 8. And these are, uh, let's read it, Romans 9, 6 through 8, before we begin talking about it. So it says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So let's talk about those verses in, these, in the notes here. And I say they are pivotal verses to set the stage for the direction of this chapter. They're very pivotal. Let's look at why I say pivotal, uh, directional. One, uh, it is not as though the word of God has failed. This describes the connection 
or the contention rather, Israel leveled against God. God stepping away from Israel and discipline does not mean desertion. It didn't mean it in the past and it doesn't mean it now. It means that Israel needed correction, discipline. And just like it says for us in Hebrews, every son God receives, uh, he, he, they have to have discipline. It is part of what God uses to train us. Well, for Israel, their discipline turned in more into punitive. It went beyond training. God had to deal with them in a punitive manner. So uh, verse 6, all of this is in verse 6. Uh, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So this is another point to make. Israel was mixed and not all that were in Israel were saved. And this is a problem because people looked at the law. The majority of those who were in Israel were, were not saved. So they looked at the law from a flesh point of view. They said, well, we can see the law. They didn't see any spiritual understanding about that. So uh, they saw the law as just a set of rules that if they could honor those rules and keep them, that God would be satisfied, which was wrong thinking. So, um, so this, this point just says to fulfill the plan for Israel, not only did they need the, uh, the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they had to believe like Abraham did. So I have Romans 3, 9 in here, which talks about, are we Jews any better? No. God has said Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then it goes on and talks about there is none righteous, not even one. So when we see that, we can say, Paul is saying, basically, Israel, you need salvation just like everybody else. I mean, we're all in the same boat together, whether you're Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. You need salvation. Those verses in Romans 9, or I'm sorry, Romans 3, are in the Old Testament. Right? There's none righteous, not even one. That's an Old Testament. Those are Old Testament verses that Paul is quoting. And then there's Galatians 3, 6 through 14. More talk about the law. And, uh, you know, let's just read some of it. Galatians 3, and I think 6 through 14 is the reference I have. So also Abraham, Abraham believed God. Now this is Paul talking about how Israel needs to focus on faith, right? Not the law. So, so also Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. How did he announce it? All nations will be blessed through you. Now, he's not talking about the church. He's talking about Gentiles. And Gentiles in the Old Testament didn't, weren't required to keep the law for salvation either. All they had to do was believe. That's it. And they would be justified, just like Abraham was. Verse 9, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Another Old Testament passage, right? Verse 12, 
the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Again, another Old Testament passage. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He, now he's talking about what's happening in our age, the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let us take an example of everyday life. No one set us, uh, can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established. So it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham. And to, well, you know, we're not going to get into this, but... Um, it continues to talk about uh, the law with respect to faith and how Israel failed in all of this. I think I was only wanted to go to 14, but they, they need to have the same faith as Abraham, not just the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to say I'm a Jew racially speaking, but they needed to follow through with the faith of it, but not all Israel is Israel. This is Paul's point to make. That's a colossal failure on Israel's part. And then point number three, this is um, uh, verse seven, nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. So two things are going on here. The first thing he mentions in verse six directionally helps us understand that God is looking to correct Israel on this fault that they have in trusting in the law for salvation as opposed to trusting in Christ who was to come. So they failed to have faith like Abraham did. So Paul pointed that out. And this is key for, the, for Israel who, who now are saying to God that if, if you elect a church like you have done, the word of God has failed. You can't do that, God. This is Israel. This is unbelieving Israel who's telling God that they, what he can, can and cannot do. Well, God is saying, look, first thing you need to know is let me show you what my plan was for you. It, it was for you to believe like Abraham did, and you failed at that. So point number three, nor, so when he says nor because, he's saying here's another thing that they did that was wrong. Right? says nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. In other words here, he's saying God is going to establish his sovereignty over Israel and forming the nation and managing it according to his eternal purpose. What do you mean managing it? Well, disciplining the nation when they need discipline, correcting them when they need correction. He's, he's over Israel. Like he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. So it was clear what his purposes was were with regard to Israel. Right? It is according to his eternal purpose. And then verse 7 again, and this is point number 4. On the contrary... What does he mean? Well, the scriptures will tell out what he means. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So in other words, God goes back to his distinct decisions 
when forming the nation Israel. So how, when he says it is not, uh, he says, nor because they are descendants, are, are they all Abraham's children? So when he says that, what he means by saying that is he's going to show you how uh, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Why, is have to, why do we have to say that? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. So point B, children of the promise, right? So it goes on, this is around verse uh, 13 or 14, where it says it is not just because uh, you're Abraham's descendants, and Abraham had many descendants, but not all of them are uh, were used by God to form the nation Israel, not all. So he's making the point, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And it's, that's how God's going to form the nation Israel. So, so children of the promise, that would be those, who are the children of the promises? Those chosen by God who will fulfill God's purposes for creating, and, and it should be for, for, for creating and establishing a nation Israel. And uh, so... That, that is the thought. That's God is telling in the next verses, he's going to be very clear. And through Isaac shall your seed be reckoned, as it would say. But when he says through Isaac, he means not through Eleazar. And we have all of that documentation in the book of Genesis where Abraham, God, Abraham received the promise. God told him what was going to happen. Abraham sat around. He waited, him and Sarah, no children. Sarah was barren. So what did they do? They, in their human wisdom and thinking, they said, well, you know, we, we, can't, we can't have kids anymore. You know, we're getting old. And we tried, and Sarah, just it's not happening. So what they decided to do was, they said, well, you know, we have this servant. His name is Eleazar. And he has been faithful to me. I'm going to just name him to be my heir. He's going to be the one who fulfills the promises. Now, just imagine, you talk about Pharaoh would not let Israel go. What about Abraham, who, and, who, who were suggesting to God that I don't have any children. We have human limitations on, you know, Sarah's barren, and it's just not happening, God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick one of my most faithful servants, and he will carry the mantle of the promise for you. And, and God had to come back and tell Abraham, no, Abraham, it's not going to be through Eleazar. That is not, I, you, you will have a son, right? And it will be through Sarah and so forth. And then it still wasn't happening. And they were getting older. And over the years that passed, still, so what did they do? Sarah came up with this thought. Hey, you know, you know, I can I can have a son through my maidservant, Hagar. And she can have the son and we'll just adopt that son as this was our son. It is through so Abraham says, "Okay, so good sounds like a good plan." Abraham didn't say, "No, no, no, God's going to provide a son." He didn't say that. He said, "No. Okay, Sarah, we're going to do it your way. Let's try it." Sure enough, Ishmael came along, and Abraham loved Ishmael. 
And God had to eventually show up again and say, Ab no, Abraham, uh-uh. Nope, it's not through Ishmael. It's going to be through Sarah. And then he came back to him that a year before. Remember, and this is where Abraham laughed in God's face and fell on the ground laughing. I mean, it was so funny to him when he, God told him he was going to have a son through Sarah. And they were old. He, he just, that was the funniest thing to him. It was one of those laughs that you just can't stop laughing. I mean, they, and then Sarah was inside the tent and she was, she was trying to compose herself, but the laughter was just getting to her. It, they both just thought it was the funniest thing. So God, he sees past, right? Uh, and I call it uh, not a choice based on human limitation or Abraham and Sarah's choice. Why I say human limitation is because they knew they were old and you know, we just don't have kids when we're that old. And God's, but God prevailed and Sarah did have a son and they named him, God even told him what the name would be. So continuing in our notes, we'll probably finish point number three. I don't think we'll have time to finish more. We'll complete that next week. So Romans, uh, the next, and, and number three, it's Romans uh, 9, 9 through 14. So, um, so the first point is God established Israel by his sovereign word. Now, let me just read 9 through 14 before we get started here. And Romans 9, just so we can follow. Okay, so here it is. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time, twins, by our father, father Isaac. We're talking generationally speaking. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by, the, by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, out of order, right? Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. So that's our next section, 9, 9 through 14. And what do we say about that? Is God established Israel by his sovereign word, promising that his purpose will be fulfilled by his choices in forming the nation. So he was clearly micromanaging when it came to the nation Israel. He didn't say, hey, I, I got a plan and I'm just hoping you work it out. Nope, God hovered over. He watched over to make sure that, that, that they were following according to what his plan was. He made sure. It wasn't just choosing Abraham and then letting it flow through Abraham's descendants. He said, no, 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 it's not going to be uh, any other. It's going to be through Sarah and then through Isaac. That's who's going to follow. And then when the twins came through Rebecca, uh, again, God jumped in and said, no, here's how it's going to flow. It's not going to be through Esau. It's going to be through Jacob. So God was establishing his sovereignty over the nation Israel. And that's important. He, he's the one that formed the nation. And you know, Israel, for, for Paul to write these, these things, uh, 
they fully understood this. This was not something that uh, they would have to strain to think about. This was in their history. All of them, the Jews, rehearsed their origins and how they were freed from, from Pharaoh. And they, this was part of their storytelling and, and their culture. Point B, God demonstrated his will through Isaac and Jacob, right, and and in Israel, right? He demonstrated it, right? It was more so. It wasn't, well, these things just happened. No, God was heavy-handed, as I said. He micromanaged this. Point C, God did not depend on human reasoning or limitations, right? He personally stepped in, but supernaturally fulfilled his word and kept his promise. So it actually worked out to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we call them the patriarchs. And it's important that we talk, when we talk about the nation Israel, we also talk about how God formed the nation Israel. So, so it's, it's key. And God supernaturally, using his divine power, he freed Israel uh, from the grasp of Egypt. Point D, especially the twins. Now, this, this was Esau and Jacob. God announced that Jacob would be the child of promise even before the twins were born. Wow. So, and, and the scripture also says before they had done any good or evil. So in other words, God just, it was his choice. It did not depend on whether or not uh, the, ch the children were, were uh, disposed to God or not whether they believed and had good works or were good people or not good people. God says, doesn't have anything, to, my choice doesn't have anything to do with that, with the person. So nobody can say, yeah, this is, Israel was, was built on Jacob because Jacob was such a good believer. No, we can't even say that. We're, we can say, now we know what God's design for, for Israel, for the nation is, obviously, it's not only the genes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it is also that they believe in the same manner that Abraham believed so that Israel would be, God could use them for his special purposes and then they would carry the gospel to all the nations. But of course, we already know Israel failed, but we're talking about the forming. Why are we talking about the forming of the nation Israel? Because Israel objected to God calling the church. They're saying, no, if you do that, God, it will be like your word failed. It'll be like God cast away his people, which he foreknew. And, and none of that is true. But Israel, they were laying uh, these accusations against God. God is defending his point. Point E, is God unjust in this? And the answer is no, not at all even though the Jews were now accusing God of being unjust. So if we don't see what's behind the scenes of Romans 9, then you might get some wrong impressions here. You might get the idea that God is referring to salvation. Well, it's not so strange because even people look at scriptures that talk about we're predestined, conformed, called, elected, and all they say is, well, that's salvation. Uh, so people are really confused about what God is trying to do, and they see everything in the light of salvation, not in the light of God's eternal purposes. And so this is 
not so strange that the Jews somehow misconstrued what salvation was and their calling was. Uh, they are prime examples of where it all started in the first place with them and their misconceptions. And those were, they were transferred to uh, the Jews as well, uh, to the Gentiles, I'm sorry. So is God an unjust in this? Because they even raised that question. Why would God raise it if it were not leveled against him? That's what was happening. They were saying, God, you're unjust in how you're choosing the church over Israel. Uh, and and it's, so, of course, they were wrong and they were not uh, seeing clearly because of the problems they had. But isn't that interesting? Uh, I say later, as we get to next week, which we won't get to today, I say later, Israel better be careful how they answer these questions. Because he's, God is asking, am I unjust in the way I formed the nation Israel? I mean, how I stepped in and said, no, it should be Jacob over Esau. Oh, no, it should be Isaac, not Eleazar, not Ishmael. I chose Abraham. I, am, am I unjust in doing this? And later I say, Israel should be very careful how they answer that question because that is the actual accusation that they are leveling against God now, that he's some kind of unjust or something. God is not unjust. And he defends himself. And he pushes back later. When, he, when we get to the potter and the clay, he's going he's gonna to push back in a way and say, yeah, the potter uh, has a right of what he wants to make when it comes to the clay. He has a right. Anyway, we're going to talk more about this next week. Uh, We will not be able to complete it all, so we're going to take the break here. We'll come back and finish 4, 5, and 6 next week, and eventually we're going to get to Romans 10. And we'll continue on our journey. So let's do this. Let's bow our heads as we close. And uh, as we think about these verses and the ironic nature of how God turns the tables on Israel. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. uh, As we can see your patience and kindness toward Israel and how even through all of their ups and downs, you still reach out your hands to them. And we recognize that it's a part of who you are, essentially. You're righteous, you're good, you're merciful, you're kind. And we, those of us who come to know you, come to respect those qualities and know that you are a good God. We love you. So we pray, Father, that uh, the world may begin to see who you are in all of this. And in accomplishing your eternal purpose, we can see not just that it is accomplished, but how you go about doing things. So we thank you for your transparency as it is revealed in this age. We thank you for such wisdom that we're seeing what the entire motivation is for all things being created. 
And we thank you for Jesus who stepped up and performed in this world and sacrificed himself for us so that your plan could continue to bring many sons into glory. All this we thank you and ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.